uh, we're allowing God to rule and we're stopping striving. We're stopping running around. We're stopping trying to, you know, like, what's my ministry itinerary? And I'm going here and I'm going there. And God really challenged me. You know, when we, are you, are you just in the business of filling your itinerary up? Because if you are, don't expect me to show up. That That's not what, you know, what God wants is, well, I'm just laying my time before you. And if you want to take us somewhere, that's that's your prerogative. How are you, Tim? Yeah, I'm not too bad considering winter has arrived. So that makes me a bit grumpy, but I'll get over it. <laughs> in in what sense is it right? What does that mean for you? Is that like well, we got uh, snow on the ground? Of snow, yeah, we got snow on the ground. That defines winter. <laughs> we we just need to move you guys to Southern California, where you'll just be in perpetual sunshine, and you'll be so much happier. And it won't even be much of a different. Uh, Climate, politically speaking, to what you're used to in Canada. Well, I I, I don't comment on political matters, so I'll steer clear of that comment. <laughs> what are you talking about? I made you talk about Christians and politics almost the entirety of our last episode. Well, I, we're talking about it from a theological perspective. Speaking of not talking about politics, let's talk about this um, this euthanasia law that Canada has going on. Surely we can talk about that from a theological perspective. Yeah, I'm not uh, 100% certain of the details, but what I do know, it's uh, kind of frightening because it is, I think, you know, they're following the Netherlands, which is a bad example to follow in this respect. Uh, and it's getting to the point where, you know, a young person who's suffering from severe depression or something could apply for you know, assisted suicide. And I think that's a terrible thing. Uh, I just don't know what's wrong with people that they sit around and, and dream up this kind of stuff. It's very depressing. But, you know, people have seen it coming for years. Uh, the pro-life movement has predicted. Uh, I remember Dr. Everett Koop, who was the Surgeon General under President Reagan, I think, and that goes back a long time ago, predicting exactly this state of affairs. He saw it coming. It's part of the collapse and decline of of um, of society, really. And um, I mean, first of all, you know, our society uh, moves away from Christian foundations, and the family falls apart. Social institutions fall apart. Mental illness rises. Then it then it, it disposes of all the victims it's created through euthanasia. I think it's absolutely awful. It's demonic. Say more about that. Like, why why was it clear decades ago that, you know, one, one checkpoint of, um, you know, our modern society was going to be something like euthanasia becoming commonplace? Yeah, because, because of the... Uh, when abortion became freely available <clears throat> and respect for life diminished, uh, it was only a matter of time. Once you've gone after the very young, it's only a matter of time before the very old are the next targets. 
And that's been very much the case in the Netherlands. Uh, and it starts off with a kind of a thin end of the wedge, which is compassion. Uh, you know, people that are very elderly and in a decrepit state really should, you know, and would have died but for modern technology and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but then um, it's taken advantage of by unscrupulous people like relatives that want to inherit the estate and they persuade, you know, the a senior person to sign off on this and and then they they've got the money and this kind of thing and it and, and that that sort of thing is happening uh because you know we're not looking after vulnerable people we don't we don't put a value on life we put a value on selfishness and expediency and what is good for for me you know the what, what is good for the one who holds all the cards and forget about it forget about the person who doesn't hold any of the cards. And that's certainly the case in abortion. It's also the case with euthanasia. And uh, and, and these things take on a life of their own. And, and you know, I just, uh, I just hope that, you know, people begin to speak up and, 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 and stop this. Uh, I think in order to, to see that happen, the, so you have to even go a layer deeper, right? Like euthanasia from a Christian perspective isn't just wrong in the sense that um, encouraging somebody to end their life because it's expedient for me, you know, financially it's going to benefit me or, or something else. It, there also has to be something more intrinsic to just whether anyone is benefiting from that person's death or not, surely Christ has something to say about the value of that person's life and uh, why it, it should be preserved, not unnaturally ended. Would you say that that's right? Because I think until you really get down to that, um, you know, because there's always going to be the argument. Well, no one's benefiting from from me making this choice. It's just something that I I want to do because of you know X Y Z. Personally, uh, unhappy or uh, severely ill. The the update in Canada seems like it's going to be uh, along the lines of making euthanasia available to those who have struggled with mental illness to to some degree of severity. I'm not sure how they're going to measure that, but it has to be more inherently wrong than just somebody is benefiting from this. Yeah, well, I, I think, but the, the underlying uh, theme is the lack of value for life and the lack of respect for uh, the creator who has uh, fashioned all life and um, who alone has the right to take it or end it. Uh, and, and so, uh, uh, you know, the, w what happens is then that that we cheapen the value of life. And, um, you know, as someone who's mentally uh, in, a, in, a, in a poor state of mental health or whatever, you know, we always say, don't make significant decisions when you're feeling low or down or, you know, things are difficult. Um, how, how, who's supposed to say that, that that person, you know, a month or six months down the road is going to come out of that? Um, there's lots of people that would have uh, taken advantage of something like that. Put it would have pushed them over the edge, and they've come out of it and lived productive lives. Um, so you know, I just think there is a cheapening and a devaluing of life. Uh, 
uh, in general in our society. And well, that's, that's no surprise. And I guess that extent, that's an extension of, of you know, what we were talking about last week in terms of how intent should we be on having a Christian influence upon uh, the social imagination? Uh, because the fruit of secularism is nihilism. Ultimately, everything becomes meaningless. And so for what purpose would I stay alive um, if my life doesn't have meaning or inherent value? Euthanasia is logical under that worldview. Yeah. And we we kind of open the floodgates, you know, to that view, uh, which is fine for people who are mentally strong or whatever, don't care. But, you know, that taking God out of the picture, taking eternity out of the picture, taking hope out of the picture is and reducing life to, you know, uh, what's the, this is all there is type of thing. And people look around and say, well, th this is all there is, and there's nothing better, then why would I want to be part of it? And so uh, I, uh, I'm, I think it's awful. Yeah, we've been reading this book on, um, on the incarnation uh, that we'll get to later in the episode. But I have to think, too, that because because Christ took the totality of the human experience upon himself, that act in and of itself states the value of, uh, of human life and, and why it is worth redeeming and preserving and protecting. And I, it does seem to me like Christians should be uh, ardently opposed to euthanasia especially you know uh, on I, I would say in general and maybe i'm not thinking it all the way through um but i i agree with your statement that ultimately god is the one who takes life now he's in, he's vested authority in the state romans 13 makes clear for you know punishing the evildoer um but on the whole god is the one who is sovereign over life and death and I, I really struggle with coming to terms with making death a choice. Yeah, uh, and but that that is sums up so much in our culture. It's a culture of death, uh, not mm. of life. And what do you mean by that? Uh, well, because when you take the hope of eternal life uh, out of the equation. When you take the love of God out of the equation, what are you left with? The certainty of death. All we are is a collection of atoms that's floating around here by accident, temporarily, without any ultimate meaning or purpose until we die. And that's not very upbuilding message. You know, most people kind of ignore it. If they can, they just ignore it. I mean, people who are unbelievers, who are atheists, agnostics, or what secularists or whatever, they they don't live consistently. If they live consistently, they'd, I don't know, like what's the point of life? They might as well just end it right now. Um, but uh, they kind of barricade that out of their day-to-day -day lives and devote themselves to the pursuit of pleasure, which kind of makes up for the ultimate 
uh, certainty of death and destruction. So, you know, like Paul said, uh, if, if we're all going to die and there's no hope, uh, eat, eat, drink, and be merry. You know, mm-hmm. that's what he said to the Corinthians because yeah. they had the, the Greeks same, were right. They, they had the same predicament. The, the Greeks didn't have a big hope of eternity at all. Um, and uh, mo- most of them, uh, you know, didn't believe in, in um, uh, you know, that you would, uh, th- there would be a personal existence after death. They didn't believe in that. They believed either that, you know, that it, it, you would just return to earth to earth and dust to dust and ashes to ashes and that's it. Or that you'd be absorbed into some, you know, uh, eternal scheme of things and and, and it maybe reappear in some different format in a later age but there'd be no continuity of what was then and what is now and so they didn't have any hope and so paul says no we 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 have a deeper reason to live you know the people around us are just eating drinking getting drunk doing whatever they want to do to drown their sorrows because they know there's no hope but we're a people with hope because of the resurrection, because Jesus came into this world, because he conquered death, because he, you know, he took all of our uh, uh, weakness upon him, and he took it up into eternal life, and gave us hope that, you know, is the meaning of the incarnation, the meaning of God becoming flesh, is that he, he came down here and restored hope to our fallen humanity and to our situation and breathe new life into us. That's what, you know, this book we've been reading is talking about, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's say more about that towards the end of the episode. Um, uh, Cause I don't want to jump the gun on that, but yeah, I, you know, um, an unplanned discussion ar- around this topic, but something certainly worth talking about and bringing into the, the psyche of, of Christians to be aware of. I wonder how it will play out and develop in America. Um, I think certainly some States are, uh, more explorative in uh, that realm than others. Um, so that would be interesting to watch. Um, but certainly I expect it to, to come onto the stage of American politics uh, in, in the future, you know, more so than it is now. I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. One thing that I've been thinking about lately uh, a bit is the topic of the Sabbath. Growing up as a Christian in uh, the church in the nineties, that was not something that I heard a lot about, but in recent years, it's, kind of come more to the forefront in uh, in some evangelical circles uh, as a practice that Christians should heartily embrace even uh, to, um, I, don't, I don't want to say a legalistic degree in the sense of, like, I don't mean that in a denigrating way as, at all. I understand that if something is healthy and right, then we should be uh, steadfast in keeping it. But but I guess my question is, from a New Testament perspective, are we right to say that Christians are required to keep the Sabbath? Or is that not the right interpretation? Well, um, you know, the the Sabbath was part of the ritual aspect of the Old Testament law, and uh, people misunderstand the relationship of the law and the gospel. Um, often, it's just reduced to the fact, well, the law is gone, now we've got the gospel, and then they don't realize how much the gospel is rooted in the law. 
So I'm not talking about that. But what I am saying is that the kind of thing that Hebrews talks about is is the particular ceremony and sac- cer- ceremonial sacrificial you know regulations that were in place prior to Christ and regulated the nation state of Israel. Uh, those have been fulfilled in Christ, and so we're no longer obligated to you know we can eat bacon now and. You know, we don't have a Sabbath in the way that they had a Sabbath. As a matter of fact, Jesus made it clear that he was the new Sabbath. If you read the Gospel of John, that's one of the things that's he fulfills all the Jewish feasts, including the Sabbath. And so, you know, he can he can invade the Sabbath and do what he wants in it because um, he existed before the law was ever given to Moses. Uh, so in that sense, as as Christians, we we don't simply transfer, you know, a Orthodox Jewish concept of uh, Friday night to Saturday night. Absolutely nothing is done, and and you have to observe all these rules and so on. We don't simply transfer that over into what we do on Sunday. Um, uh, but then, on the other hand, you can look at it and say, well, God rested on the seventh day. Now, I think if you look at the scripture. The idea of rest is what did God do? He rested from creating, but he started to govern. So the rest of God wasn't sitting around doing nothing. You know, it, it related to his government of the earth. Uh, so I think that I think it's a complex topic. Um, I don't on the one hand, I don't think that we can just say, uh, you know, we, we we can't just turn the clock back. And have laws where no no stores open on Sunday or whatever. Um, I think you could argue that there was a uh, social slash psychological slash physical benefit to mm-hmm. that, in that it protected most people, not all people, because some people always had to work, but it protected a lot of people from having to work. It gave them a guaranteed space. It slows people down. You know, it, it has benefits. Um, it's just that you can't tie those in biblically. So I would say uh, we need to learn to rest. Uh, you know, we can't drive ourselves all the time, um, but that doesn't equate into uh, having a Sunday where, you know, we're not going to go to the drugstore because we need to pick a prescription up, let's say. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a, a few threads there to pick up on. Um, I've, I am curious to come back to your point about God governing on the seventh day. I've never heard that before. I'm curious for you to say more about that. Uh, but as it regards the Sabbath, it certainly seems obvious to me that rest is necessary and not just arbitrary rest, but rhythmic rest, because um, uh, proper rest is what prevents us from you know, hitting walls. And so having it as a part of rhythm for regular life, I think is important. Um, so some, uh, you know, well-known preachers are, are quite strict around their adherence to uh, their Sabbath. Um, and I, I guess I would kind of put that down to what each person individually needs in order to have a true day of rest. Um I, I think of one, I think, you know, on on, uh, on their Sabbath, they, they don't allow themselves to do anything within the realm of 
consumption. Um, so, you know, staying away from the shops, not surfing the internet, certainly not going on Amazon or something like that. Um, I could see, you know, I guess when you think about consumption, you think about making more money and all of a sudden in your head, you're trying to be productive rather than truly resting. Um, but is that something that should be prescribed for every person? Well, I think everyone has to find their own rhythm. Uh, I think that we all have to, you know, the it, those that are tend, tend to be workaholics have to learn to slow down and give more time to their family or time to their walk with God or whatever. And whether you find those moments of rest throughout the week or whether you find them on a particular day when you exclude certain activities, um, I think it's an individual thing. I think it's I think it's a good principle because if we just keep going and going and going, we burn out. But I'm I'm I have a reluctance to tie it into the Old Testament Sabbath simply because it tends it, you know that, that it tends to suggest that you can translate over that old covenant regulation which has been mm-hmm. fulfilled in Christ and isn't to be observed anymore uh, does the sabbath law being part of the 10 commandments change that like does it, does it afford it any extra you know transitional power into the new covenant i mean things like adultery and murder yeah. are you know, well, certainly carried over. Is that true of the Sabbath as well? Well, uh, you know, throughout the Old Testament, God was pretty strict. You know, you you see denunciations of, um, you know, Israel in their unfaithful periods, and there's there it's mixed up with, you know, cheating or violence and breaking the Sabbath. They're are, are, are all thrown into the same pot. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, God took that very seriously. Uh, but the fulfillment of this, I mean, Hebrews teaches us that the Sabbath rest is fulfilled in Christ. So mm-hmm. the, the intention of the Sabbath was that it pointed forward prophetically to a deeper rest that was coming. And so the idea is that every time the children of Israel took or the Israelites took a Sabbath, honored a Sabbath, or any one of the other feasts, they were all prophetically looking forward to Christ. So they were meant to be pointing people in the direction of Christ. And then when Christ came, he pointed out how he was the fulfillment of all of those. And the Sabbath rest in Hebrews is described as salvation. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's the end of striving in our own efforts to make ourselves mm-hmm. acceptable to God and the collapsing into the arms of a loving and merciful God for our salvation, that we don't have to strive anymore. We don't have to live an independent life anymore. We don't have to try to, you know, make everything happen for ourselves anymore, that we now can trust Christ and and our life is in his hands, and we we release the control to him. That's all a part of what Sabbath means. It's a state of mind. Sabbath is a state of mind. It's not just um, taking time off. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, when I'm thinking of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is talking about things like murder and adultery, and he takes them, you know, those laws 10 steps further into 
matters of the heart. Would he do something similar with the Sabbath then, would you say? And is that kind of what Hebrews is getting at? Well, you know, I mean, I think Jesus was critiquing the legalism of the Pharisees uh, by saying, you know, that typically the Pharisees reduced uh, the requirements of the law to the point where they could look at them and say, oh, I'm keeping them now. Um, And he did that, you know, throughout the Sermon on the Mount in a number of different ways. Uh, And I'm sure he would have made the critique on the Sabbath as well. Probably, probably, you know, they were cutting corners on it. Um, But I, I, I think that the idea of Sabbath, if we, if we reduce it, well, I'm trying to say, Jake, is if we reduce it to a day a week off, um, we're not getting the full intention. A day a week off is probably good advice that whether you're a Christian or not, you know, uh, a, a psychologist, a doctor, whatever will will tell you that's a good idea. But the rest, the Sabbath rest that Jesus gives us is far deeper than that. It's living 24 hours a day, giving over control of everything that's going on in our lives, stopping trying to make everything happen. What is it when we're, you know, not on the Sabbath means we're running around trying to make everything happen. Um and I'm not talking about fulfilling legitimate responsibilities. I'm talking about, you know, me being controlling my own life. And there's plenty of Christians who profess to be Christians, but are still controlling the reins of their own life. And Christianity, their Christianity is kind of, you know, like I'm not saying they're unsaved. It's just that they haven't integrated. They haven't really got it. They're they're still running out, living their own independent life, fulfilling their and pursuing whatever it is they want. Um, and Jesus is, is saying, no, you know, just stop, just stop, just stop. Um, take some time to, to read my words, take some time to talk to me. That's part of a Sabbath rest. Um, listen to what I want you to do in your life. Uh, and I think that's when radical things start to happen. I was just reading a book, a friend of mine, Jimmy Seibert wrote, um, and it's a story of how so many times he went, you know, and I, I would look at the story of his life and think, man, he was really sincere for God. But so many times he confessed, you know, God just confronted him and drove him back into prayer and rebuked him and sent people to rebuke him. We don't rebuke each other enough, probably, you know, and and out of those times came something incredible, like signs and wonders and miracles, um, not because he thought he was all that bucket of chicken, but because God stopped him and said, you know, take time to fast, take time to pray. That's Sabbath, you know, just stop trying to do it yourself. Even when you're leading a church or a ministry or something, you can be doing it yourself. It's like the it's like the, the Chinese apostle that came over to the States 30 years ago, went around all these ministries. And at the end of it, the the, the brother said to him, well, what, what do you think about church in America? And he said, well, it's amazing how much you've been able to do without God, you know, I mean, because we have so many resources that we can just live our life functionally without God in a way. So I hope I'm not being too critical, but um, I mean, you know, I grew up in a society where everything shut down on Sunday. 
uh, it was very rare for anything to be open on on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I honestly think when we went into all the consumer mentality and rush and everything, you know, I, I, I just think we lost something. I mean, things are busy seven days a week now, and uh, there's no sense of rest and peace. And there's all sorts of people who are having to work, you know, extra hours and, you know, you you can't sort of, I mean, when those laws came in, people were given the right, you know, if you don't want to work in a sunny, that's all gone out the window now. You want to keep your job, you got to work whenever. And I think mm-hmm. it's damaging. So like, I kind of like restrictions, you know, like we had, I think they're therapeutic, mm-hmm. um, but I still can't advocate for uh, a Christian Sabbath unless you define the Sabbath uh differently than you know just sort of saying well i'm taking a day and i'm not going to go shopping or anything like that the sabbath is a state of mind that's how i look at it and we need to and, and it's 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 a state of mind where um uh we're allowing god to rule and we're stopping striving we're stopping running around we're stopping trying to you know like what's my ministry itinerary and i'm going here and i'm going there and god really challenged me you know when we entered into this thing that we're doing the last few years with traveling a lot is you know are you are you just in the business of filling your itinerary up because if you are don't expect me to show up that that's not what you know what god wants is well i'm just laying my time before you and if you want to take us somewhere that's that's your prerogative but I don't want to plan anything in my own initiative. Martha, you know, it's like Martha and Mary, isn't it? I mean, Martha was ordering, I mean, Martha was making a lunch Jesus never ordered. <laughs> That's not an original Campbell either. It came from an amazing man called Ern Baxter. And I had it stuck with me. Mary was the one that was having the Sabbath. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and certainly if Sabbath is a state of mind or, you know, a, a, a posture before God, that is going to manifest in your actual, you know, work and rest rhythms and habits. There's no doubt about that. But that's not to say also that we, we adhere to a strict Jewish Sabbath as prescribed in the Old Testament. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you think yeah. about I mean, I'm doing a lot of talking, but what do you think? Yeah, I don't I don't know what to think, honestly. I mean, there's a lot of people of my generation that make much of the Sabbath. I can see the value in, in having regular rhythms of rest. Um, but from a theological standpoint, I've often found myself wondering, are we are we making more of this uh, theologically, you know, in regards to a requirement than we ought to? Um, because of how Jesus has fulfilled the law. Uh, and that, you know, again, going back to my question with the Ten Commandments and how Jesus talks about the laws and the Sermon on the Mount, he wasn't doing away with them. Um, if anything, he was upping the ante. And so what does that look like for something like the Sabbath? You know, surely for Jesus to up the ante on the Sabbath doesn't mean that he was going to add even more fences around the Sabbath law to <laughs> make sure that people um, weren't doing anything remotely resembling work, which is what the Pharisees did. So it must mean something different. Um, and your language about 
uh, an internal posture, it makes a lot of sense to me. So long as that actually manifests in real rest, because we need real rest. Yeah, we do. And uh, but I am a bit, you know, like one preacher said he was taking a Nazarite vow. Maybe you, I'm not going to name who it was, but anyway, I mean, maybe maybe you've taken one. You know, you haven't shaved lately, but anyway. <laughs> but you're probably sh- ever ever since I started being able to grow a beard, I've shaved actually one time. Well, in my entire adult life. Well, then you are Nazarite, except you're not really. Otherwise, your hair would be right down your back. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I'm thinking, hey, wait a minute. I like, where are we getting into Nazarite vows? You know, I mean, um, I, I think we have to be careful. I really do think we have to be careful or else we'll be introducing legalistic practices mm-hmm. back into our Christian walk. What was the the occasion in Acts when Paul, when he got to Jerusalem, did he, am I misremembering this? Did he like shave his beard or cut his hair because he was under a vow? Yeah. Before he no, the, the, uh, the uh, he paid the expenses of the men that, that, that were undergoing that Jewish ritual. But the idea is, you know, Paul said I, to the Jew, I became as the Jews, right? Even though I'm not under the law. Mm-hmm. To the Gentile, I became like the Gentiles, even though I'm not without the law, but I'm in the law of Christ. He writes the Corinthians. And so what he means is that uh, when he's in Jerusalem and bearing in mind that these are all Jewish Christians who are uh, living, you know, they have found faith in Christ, but they're living in a kind of an in-between era where the temple is still operating and they're fulfilling their religious obligations. However, they found salvation by grace, and it's not clear to them yet that um, mm-hmm. you know that, that 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 this whole thing is 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 is, is going to take a, a different direction. And then God intervenes in the end, uh, as Jesus prophesied, to bring the temple, the whole structure, down. But in that thirty-year period, in that first generation, there were a lot of Christians that. And we can tell from the book of Acts, it was heavy debates over it. And they were, you know, we have to put ourselves in their position. Uh, uh, and and uh, they wanted to honor God, um, but they didn't want, they they clearly didn't believe that the vows, the things that they were going through with or whatever were, you know, brought them salvation. It was just something that was an expression of piety. And so mm-hmm. Paul is, he knows like that, it's like the weak and the strong believers in Roman and Corinth. He knows that they are Christians that aren't that still, you know, they think that if they buy meat that's been sacrificed to idols, that that's idol worship. And it isn't really, but there's still people in that position. So he'll accommodate them. And, uh, uh, and he won't eat meat, you know, even though he probably liked good steak as much as you do, he won't eat meat if that's going to, to harm someone, a weaker person's conscience. So he goes to Jerusalem and he sees these people. Well, they haven't quite got it yet, but I'm not going to cause offense and I'm not going to bring a bad testimony. You know, the the church was trying to maintain a good testimony within the community of Jerusalem to win people to Christ. And so they, I mean, he didn't volunteer, but they said to him, well, look, we've got these men who are going through a vow and their hair, you know, according to the Old Testament procedure, their hair is going to be shaved off as part of this vow and will you pay their expenses which presumably means they were taking time off work to go to prayers at the temple or something and you know they needed money to do that and 
Paul coughed up the cash for that and he was asked to do it and he complied with it. So that's, that's what I understand that to be. Fascinating. Uh, I have questions about how Paul could afford that. Did it come out of the offering? I wonder that he was bringing to Jerusalem. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, uh, he had, he had enough money. And yeah, that's uh, interesting. Isn't uh, it? Yeah. Are we so, right to think of Paul as a poor man? Uh, I, I, where I think the key is where he says, I found contentment in having little, and I found contentment in, in having a lot. Um, there were times when uh, lots of money came in. There are times when nothing came in and he had learned not to complain when times were tough and not to become materialistic and slack when times were good. Cause I think our hearts are tested at both ends of the spectrum. Um, I agree with you. Yeah. At least mine is maybe, maybe you're more spiritual than me, but um, so I gr- grumble. It's very difficult when things are tough and then, but then I worry, you know, when money comes in and I have more than, than I need to live on Lord, please don't allow me to become comfortable in the wrong sense or to become materialistic or to start spending money in wrong ways and etc. That's another whole topic. So let's come back to what you said about God governing on the seventh day. One of the scriptures that that made me think of is when Jesus was accused of breaking the Sabbath, and he said that my father was working up until now, and I am working. So is there a connection there? That's what I'm saying, that when when God rested on the seventh day from the work of creation, did he retire? No, he started to rule over what he had created, right? And so that's all Jesus is saying is I'm entering into my father's rule. And part of mm. his father's rule was the ministry of healing the sick that that he had. So Jesus was saying, I am the Sabbath. I am, I am uh, God at work um, in the true sense of work. Uh, which is to bring the righteous rule of God into this world. Uh, And so uh, everything that's been there in terms of Sabbath regulations up till now has actually pointed to me. You know, this rest from work you've had one day a week for centuries and centuries and centuries, which has been a blessing, is meant to point you to a time when a deeper kind of rest is coming a rest for your soul. And that rest is something akin to ruling, I suppose, because if God entered into the work of ruling, especially pre-fall, that I suppose would be ruling in the sense of enjoying, presiding over and enjoying the benefits oh. of, uh, not to say that God derives anything that he needs from the creation, but when I think of reward in a heavenly sense, um, you know, Jesus says to the 12 that you will rule, you know, on 12 thrones over the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Paul says that um, there'll be some sense of ruling or, or judging that we exercise as part of our heavenly reward. Is that, to me, it seems like that would be then in connection to the Sabbath and that in some way Sabbath is meant to be a presiding over of uh, what it is that you have produced and enjoying it and thanking God for it. Um, and eternity is essentially that in perpetuity. Yeah, no, uh, I agree with you. So I think that... Uh, there's a there's a psalm I wish I could quote it exactly, but which says that God's come to rest uh, between the cherubim, 
and it is the picture of God in the in the ark. Uh, but the rest, what is God doing in the ark? He's ruling over the people of Israel. It's interesting. Mm. Um, and Professor G.K. Beale has pointed this out in one of his books, one of his amazing books, um, that the the uh, ark. I'm sorry, the uh, tabernacle of Moses was constructed along the lines of Egyptian war headquarters uh, with three compartments. And in the innermost compartment, there was always an idol representing Pharaoh. Um, yeah. And uh, and it's like God sort of ripped off this idea, but he used it, but he changed it to make the point that in there's no idol there. It's him. And but the point is that the tabernacle is a traveling war headquarters. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. And God is dwelling between the cherubim means that he's resting there. He's conducting war. He's ruling over his entire universe and advancing his kingdom from that place. So that's it's again, this idea of the rest is the place where, you know, when we come into a place of rest with God, if we're praying, we're actually conducting we're, we're part of the government of god on this earth because god is using us we co-labor in prayer with him to change the course of events in this earth um rest as war there's something to that but especially what, what kind of activity did god expect of the jews in um uh in their sabbath was there a heightened sense of prayer or a heightened call to prayer i th- i'm sure that the intention of God was that it would be a refocusing time. Uh, you know, it would be a time when people refocused on him because they didn't have to, you know, do the other things. They were to devote themselves to pondering and telling, you know, their families and their children the great things that God had done and, uh, you know, worshiping together as a family and so on. These were the things, this was what the Sabbath was about. It was it was a refocusing um and it was i think um uh yeah i think directing when you focus on god that directs us to the hope uh, the prophetic hope in the old testament which was the coming of the messiah and so that's why jesus you know presents himself as the fulfillment of the sabbath in the same way he does as the fulfill present himself as the fulfillment of all the other Jewish feasts as well. Mm-hmm. And indeed Jesus came and tabernacled among us. He he was the fulfillment of the ark in our midst. And he was uh, the kingdom is in your midst. The kingdom is at hand because he was the personification and embodiment of the kingdom. And he's ruling and reigning. He's beginning his rule and his reign. Uh, in his incarnation, in his coming, um, and that is that is involving of of uh, of a working mindset. Um, yeah, I don't know if I, I I'm not smart enough to connect all of these ideas together, but um, certainly that should inform because as the body of Christ we are carrying on his mission. And so we are to operate with the same mentality that we see he operated with in the gospels. You know, and I think it's a killer, practically speaking, uh, to, for me to live my life on my own 
without the empowering of God. And I know that none of us is as good as prayer at prayer as we should be. But mm-hmm. when I go back and sp- I, just lately, you know, I felt God saying, well, just take a few minutes, you know, to run through, focus, present the needs of your family and, and ministry and the things you're doing. And uh, the couple of people I know that are very ill and this sort of thing. Just come back and give it to me. Give it to me. Give it to me. What a difference a few minutes makes to the way that we look at life. You know, sometimes it just, I feel the burden lifting, the stress lifting, because we all get so stressed. And there's a lot, stress is worry. It's fear. It's a form of fear. And perfect love casts out fear. And when we come to the Lord, his perfect love comes in and it casts out fear. And all of a sudden, you know, the stress level goes down. It's very therapeutic, actually. Um, and I think I think we're Sabbathing. You know, we're resting a little bit when we focus on God in those prayer times and, and those times when we meditate on the scriptures and realize what God did and his truth. And, and we always need to be kicked in the backside uh, because of the materialistic mindset that we have in our culture, 300 years of being taught that only what can be accessed by our five senses is real. There's nothing beyond it. And as Christians, we don't believe that, but we're confronted by it all the time. And that's why we need to go back to the well, you know, and kind of draw out of it. And I know there's always a very, there's always a debate uh, in Christian, in Christian circles over, you know, we don't want to become too experiential. Uh, but to know God, the Hebrew word yada, it means, and and again, it's come up in this book, um, it's experiential knowledge of, of God. We need experience. We need to have an experience, an encounter with the living God, and we need to have it day by day by day. Yeah, could not agree more. Well, I guess that's a good uh, time to transition into uh, our next segment, talking through this book, The Incarnation of God, uh, written by John C. Clark and Marcus Peter Johnson. Um, I finished the book, and now in preparation for each of these episodes, I'm getting the joy of reading it a second time. Um, and it's, it's, it's that good. Let me throw out um, uh, some quotes, and, and we can use those as um, jumping points to. Uh, have a conversation about it. And the heart behind this, just for all of our listeners, is it's Christmas time. Um, and so uh, this is to help us think more deeply about the Christmas season. Uh, and especially for those of you who are teachers, pastors, um, maybe this can help you just in your own uh, preparation for what you're bringing to your churches. Uh, the author says, God, without ever ceasing to be God, actually became what he created in order to reconcile us to himself. The incredibly wonderful mystery that the church confesses when we say Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man is that God has joined himself to us forever. So this is something that I think Christians don't think about a lot is that in becoming man, Jesus never from that point on stopped being man. He has joined himself to us forever. He became what he was not in order that we could be reconciled to him. And Jesus, to this day, am I right in thinking, still has the shape and the image of 
of human body, although in a resurrected expression. Yes, in that, uh, and 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 that is what all of us are destined for, who are saved, according to Paul's teaching in one Corinthians fifteen. Jesus exists in a glorified state, so he doesn't exist in the state that in the state of humiliation he existed in while he walked this earth, but he has passed through that and it exists in a glorified state. But I love what they what they say, you know, what they're talking about, how um, God uh, sent Jesus, he came and took every part of our humanity upon him and he had to do that in order to redeem us and rescue us and you can't sort of you know cut corners on that like some of the early theologians that try to rationalize and well jesus you know he okay you know he was fully god and fully man but really he couldn't he couldn't really have been fully man he couldn't have mm-hmm. taken upon our you know he couldn't have had a human mind or soul or whatever because that would be beneath him and no that's that's heresy it's false teaching because how can you redeem or how can he redeem what he didn't assume and he he, he took upon himself humbled himself took on the form of a servant a slave he he came down to our level and yet he walked through it as hebrews says those three wonderful words in english yet without sin yet without mm-hmm. sin it's absolutely mind-blowing um mm-hmm. and and you think how can that be but if you believe that jesus came was god and came into this world then all things are possible changes everything mm-hmm. and and he and he and he's now drawing us into his glorified humanity and out of our sinful sin-stricken uh state which is the the only hope that we've got that's a massive hope here's a question that i've wrestled with for um a few years in taking on our humanity jesus was tempted uh Am I right in saying, does Hebrews say it pretty, you know, maybe this is a paraphrase, but in, tempted in every way that we are tempted? So far, so good? Yet without sin. Yet without sin. So here's here's a question. Uh, I read a book, I think it was last year, called Knowing Sin. And, I'm, you know, the problem with being an obsessive reader is that it's hard to carry all the big ideas of the books in your head for long periods of time. But um, one of the distinctions that they had made, and I, there was another book that I'd read a couple of years before this as well, that had made a similar distinction is that Jesus experienced the temptation of sin from the external standpoint, but not the internal standpoint. Their logic for that being that some um, some temptations in and of themselves are sinful. Like you would have to have a sin nature in order to even experience that temptation. Uh, or maybe that's true of all internal temptations. Um, yet Jesus didn't have a sin nature. Um, and I think, I, I can't even remember. <laughs> I think they might even go on to address this in, in this book on the incarnation, but 
Like when it says that Jesus was tempted in every way, you know, it's hard for me to imagine that, you know, Jesus was just minding his own business and some thought of fornication popped into his head without any kind of external stimulus. Well, you know what I mean? It, it's hard for us to grasp because we're sunk in a, deep in our fallen humanity uh, and we haven't grasped the glory and depth of, of what the incarnation means. Uh, and when Jesus is presented in um, the wilderness uh, temptation, uh, he comes face to face with the devil himself who you know, makes all these suggestions to him and he just says no. And uh, if it were me, um, I hope I would have said no uh, mm -hmm. to the devil as well. I, I, I couldn't have done it without the grace of God within me, obviously. But how did Jesus handle that differently for me? Well, I would have sat for a bit thinking about this offer of, you know, the kingdoms of the world. And I might think, well, no, I'm not wicked enough to want that. But, you know, I'll take a little cream off the top here and I would like my ministry to be a bit better known or something like that. You know, I mean, that those thoughts, I would have entertained them. And then, oh, God, help me, you know, give me grace. And I, I get past it. And that's how we wrestle with these things. But Jesus just didn't. It was an automatic no, and I, you, 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 nor I, neither you nor, nor I are ever going to get inside the mind of Jesus Christ. Maybe when we meet him face to face as to how that worked. But the scripture <laughs> says he was tempted in every respect, yet without sin. And mm -hmm. I don't care how you define sin. I mean, at least I do care how you define it. Um, <laughs> because, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. But Wesley described sin as sort of, well, you could be tempted, but if you didn't respond, you didn't weren't really sinning. But that's not true because the minute you entertain something, even if you don't make a negative response, you're still involved in sinning. But Jesus just didn't. He just right, didn't. and and that's yeah. the distinction that they make in that book, knowing sin. That there, it is not possible for Jesus to be without sin unless there there was some experience of his temptation that that was different to ours. And I do believe that this book goes on to talk about that. Cause I remember, I remember feeling this tension when I read the book the first time around. And then at some point they, they made a few statements that helped resolve that tension in me. It's a mystery. <laughs> it's a mystery. And I don't want to solve it because I don't, I don't want to fit the oh, Because you, you and, you and I've often thought about this as a Christian. And, and I think about how did Jesus manage to do that? And I can't even relate to it because it's not the world that I live in. I live in a sinful, fallen world. I'm sold under sin. Romans 7, 14 is something that applies to me. You know, obviously I'm saved as well, but I mean, I'm still here in this mortal body subject to, you know, uh, and and uh, the good that I want to do, I can't do, as Paul says about himself, you know, a very godly man. And, and it's not that he can't do any good. It's just that he he can't do uh what he can never fully do what he would fully want to do as a believer because he's just confronted with the limits of his own sin and and uh uh so we can't even conceive how Jesus pulled it off but he did mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
Jesus did not come to dispense arcane, previously hidden factoids about God that we are to mentally appropriate. Rather, the Son of God came to share with us his knowledge of God, his Father. He came, in other words, to incorporate us into his experiential, relational knowledge of the Father through the Spirit to share the intimacy that characterizes their knowing of one another. So the idea here being, and this reminded me of, um, have you read any Fred Sanders, any of his stuff on the Trinity? I have uh, He's a Trinitarian theologian. He's a wonderful you're, 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 You take God. more Sabbaths than me, so you can do all this reading. <laughs> I'm just a, an obsessive reader, um, usually because I feel like an idiot. So I just need to s- steal what everybody else knows. But um, that's all any of us do. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. So he, he talks, you know, he's a Trinitarian theologian. So he talks a lot about this idea of uh, the gospel beginning with God. And I can't remember the the, the scripture where um, I think it might be in first or second Timothy, where Paul calls the gospel, the gospel of God, the good news of God. And this idea of the, in order for God to give the gospel, it has to originate within himself. And the way that the gospel originates within himself is because he is triune. So the notion that God is love, you know, for instance, is because God is experiencing love in and of himself. And we are invited into that love. And that's what makes that love so life-giving, even to the point of eternal life. It's because it is to share in the love and the life that God himself is sharing in. And the, the thing that I loved about this book on the incarnation is it helped connect that uh, for me. I think it's in this chapter, in chapter two, where he talks about those two theological terms. I'm going to mispronounce them. The, uh, is it perichasis? Perichoresis and perichoresis and, and homoousian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> perichoresis uh, is that is that right a big word well that's yeah, how sure. i would pronounce it <laughs> and, um and essentially that's talking about you know god's indwelling of the of the trinity i i'm too much of a young millennial with a with a uh, uh a partially sanctified mind to appreciate the term interpenetration that they use because uh, it just sounds too sexual to me <laughs> But it's saying that on one of the chapters at the end of this book, where they do uh, connect the doctrine of the incarnation to the way that we should think about sex is profound. Um, but essentially, there's that triune relationship, the the uh, the uh, indwelling with one another. And then the homoousian, how Jesus is of the same substance as the father and the same substance in his incarnation as man. And so, therefore, in joining mankind to himself, he brings us into uh, the perichoretic experience. He brings us into the indwelling relationship. Do I, do I have that about right? Yeah, and I think they did a great job in, in uh, you know, that God brings us into uh, the center of the, the, the loving interrelationships that are going on within the Trinity. Uh, through the work of, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit work together to bring us into their communion. Um, How might, so like, let's just make this applicable for a preacher really quick. How might this revelation, this this scriptural truth, impact the way that you give an altar call for somebody to get saved? It seems to me like any altar call that does not find its inception in in what the incarnation says is going to be 
not a, not a, a wrong altar call, incomplete certainly, but maybe missing out on how attractive it can be. I mean, beginning your call to salvation with the reality of what the incarnation means uh, is to me far more compelling than just the simple notion, especially, you know, for today's people, uh, than just the, and I, please, someone's got to soundbite this and say that I'm, you know, downplaying penal substitution, but I'm not. I'm just saying that beginning with the incarnations seems more compelling to me than, than just, you know, Jesus died on the cross for your sins so that you could be forgiven. Yes, he did. The way that works uh, is that Jesus himself is the one who uh, is forgiveness. In him, we have forgiveness by getting to join in his life, which is only possible because he joined himself to humanity. Do you understand what I'm trying to say there? Yeah, I do. Like I've, I, I've given a yeah. thousand and one altar calls that fall short of, of the beauty of this. Yeah, I think, well, you know, the gospel uh, is, it's uh, in Romans 1, it's the gospel of salvation. It's the gospel, it, bring, it declares salvation and hope. It also uh, declares judgment. And so in, in part of what we do is we have to explain, you know, we're in a mess but this is the way out of it. But God, what God wants us to do, it's not just, you know, like we call fire insurance. It's not just, you know, you've got to be saved from hell. That actually is, is self-centered. That appeals to the self. No, mm. uh, God calls all men everywhere to repent. Um, God calls people back to himself to honor him, to live for him. But the great, what what Jesus reveals is that God draws us into his own, uh, you know, into the relationship of love, which exists within the three persons of the Trinity, that that is part, that is really what salvation is. It, it draws us out of condemnation, but into that eternal love relationship, and therefore puts us in a place where you know, we can glorify God and worship him, which is what the pictures in Revelation are meant to portray of the deceased saints worshiping God. They're caught up into, you know, this uh, incredible scene of love and worship and adoration that's going on around the throne of God, where everyone's caught up in it. Um, mm -hmm. And and so we get to be caught up into it in an even more uh, in a wonderful way than the angels we, because we, we are we are not experiencing god simply around the throne room we are experiencing god on the throne because we are in christ and so we get to experience the father and the spirit as christ experiences the father and the spirit and that may not be descriptive of that of, of how we feel in our experience on this side of uh, the new creation but is is that the theological reality yeah, and and I, like I think what's a what's really um, you know if we want to make a practical application to where people are at today, we live in uh, a broken, massively broken society. Uh, families are devastated, destroyed, and you know uh, we just run across this all over the place. Uh, it's all around us. Well, here we have a message of family. The family is the Trinity, and God's inviting us into his family. It's a place of healing, hope, restoration. It's a place that will give you, you know, um, 
all that you needed when your own family disintegrated. It's 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 actually what the human human family was based on when it's operating properly. And um, I, I think it, it it should be something that we present to people, you know, when we're sharing Christianity with them in our society, you know, um, God himself lives in this perfect community, invites us into community with him. People are desperate for community, right? Because their own community, which is at the heart of which is, is the nuclear family, has been devastated, destroyed. People are looking for community. We can offer it. And when you come into the church, the body of Christ, you actually begin to touch the eternal supernatural power of mm. that heavenly throne room scene. It mm. actually, you know, it happens when we're worshiping, it happens mm-hmm. when we're serving one another, caring for one another. Uh, and and so the church should be um, mm. a very attractive place to be for people mm-hmm. in this kind of broken society that, that we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a tragedy. And I'll say it's an absolute tragedy when churches, you know, don't honor God in that way or where there's um, breaking of covenant where leaders fall into sin, where there's backbiting and gossip going on and divisions, this type of thing. Um, You know, they're always going to be there. They were there in the New Testament church. They're always going to be there, but it's still a tragedy. It's a travesty. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and, and it puts a a blockage in uh, the, in the minds of people who are seeking salvation because they, mm-hmm. if, if they look at the church and Christian leaders and they say, well, there's no hope there, they're no better than we are, then that's terrible. That's absolutely awful. And God will hold us to account for it. But- I may be jumping ahead of myself here uh, into another chapter, but just in regards to what you're talking about, the way that we experience the life of the Trinity as Christians is in Christ, but the way that that becomes concrete is that we have to understand that means in the body of Christ, which Paul calls in Ephesians, the church, the fullness of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So uh, in a very real sense, the church, I don't know any other cleaner way to say this, but I certainly don't mean it in the way that it sounds, but the church is Christ. And I, that's not a, I'm not trying to make a heretical statement there. But us being his body is, is not merely analogy. It is reality. It is, it is how we actually are in Christ. And what I'm getting at is that the reason that my, my spirit is more edified through corporate worship and the corporate gathering than just by solitudinal prayer is because in the body of Christ, I am experiencing a level of in Christness that by God's design and intention is more than my experience than when I'm alone. Am I barking up the wrong tree there or is, is that puts, in line with the biblical witness? God puts the lonely in families and mm-hmm. uh, you know, we have a large family and it's, it's dispersed a little bit more than I, I'd like it to be, but it's wonderful when they all come together we kind of collapse and everybody goes, but, uh, but it's, it, there's something of joy, 
you know, when family is together and people are talking to each other, relating well with each other, they're not falling out with each other. And you see mom and dad, grandparents, children all gathered. And, you know, there's something very precious about that, I think. And that, but that you see, that's the way church should be. It really is. It's the way church should be. We were, we ministered in a church in Michigan, Centerville, Michigan, and we've had a so, association with it for 20, 20 plus years now. And the last time we went back, uh, we hadn't been there for months and we got at the front door. It took us an hour from when we got to the front door to when we got to the coffee station. That was, of course, where I was aiming, being somewhat less spiritual than you are. Um, and, you know, I don't know, it's probably 50 or 60 feet for maybe a little bit more from the front door to the coffee station. It took us an hour because of all the people that came up. And uh, and and we were late. We came an hour early for service and we were late getting in. I, I did get my coffee, though, I have to say. But and I thought this is what church should be. It's family. You know, this is family. But even even beyond what, the relational experience, though, and I, I'm with you on that. And like, I'm, you know, our church is 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 fundamentally built on the strength of those relationships. So I'm with you. But even beyond the relational experience, when I'm worshiping with others, and I might not, maybe I walked in right as worship started and I didn't say hi to anybody, but when I'm worshiping with others, isn't it is an experience of, of the Holy Spirit ushering us into the presence of, of the triune God that exceeds my experience when I worship on my own, I can feel the difference. It is as the, the authors of this book say, it is an experiential personal knowledge. Um, and I think the body of Christ can't be separated from that reality. If you really want to experience the wonder of the incarnation, then you have to get into Christ's body. And it doesn't seem to me like the new Testament makes any effort whatsoever to distance that from the actual gathering of the saints. Do not neglect meeting together as has become the habit of some. You will be worse off for it. Yeah, and 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 I'll take a step further. It's one of the reasons why I keep on advocating for uh, uh, participation within services. But the, Paul is quite clear in 1 Corinthians 14, when you come together, let everyone have this, that, or the next thing. And, you know, most services have become very corporate. It's like a concert from the front. And the, the, But I have seen the difference. When somebody gets up and prays or reads a scripture verse or he gives a brief testimony or obviously a prophetic word or something like that in the midst of the congregation, and, and obviously you can't have that many, but even if there's some, the whole level just jumps. It jumps to a different level, in my opinion. Agreed. Because, Agreed. because it's family, you know, and and uh, the worship leaders shouldn't be threatened by that at all. They should rejoice with in it. And you might have to, you know, um, might not go quite according to plan, might have to make a little bit of a change. But, you know, uh, church is never supposed to be predictable. If it gets predictable, then we've lost track of the Holy Spirit, you know. <laughs> Um, I think, but anyway, uh, but yeah, I mean, that was one question I had about this chapter. They put the, when they're talking about the Holy spirit, which we'll get to in a minute, they put spiritual giftings in like scare quotes, like almost in a bit of a denigrating tone. I didn't understand that. That's a chapter I haven't read yet. No, it's I in think. chapter two. 
Is it? Yeah, I didn't pull the quote for this conversation, but I'm just reminded of it. Um, okay, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't ring a bell. But I would just cer- certainly I would dis- disagree with any yeah. any. You know, I think the spiritual gifts are really really important. Um, yeah, I agree. Because, because it's it's God using family to speak to each other. You know, when when our family comes together, I mean, we have eight children, eight eight grandchildren, and so on. When when our family comes together, if they were all together in one place, it wouldn't just be Elaine and I, you know, standing up and doing all the talking, and they're just sitting there like bumps in a log. I mean, they'd be talking to each other. They'd be bringing you know stuff to each other and 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 sharing all around there's a buzz you know and and uh in a way that's what our worship service should be there should be that you know counterpoint of of you saying you know i i you you get up and say oh, all week i've been thinking about this scripture and somebody else pops up and says that's absolutely amazing god has has done the same thing for me and all of a sudden you know we're in a perichoretic not quite perichoretic because that refers to the trinity but god is drawing us in 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 mm-hmm. in the opening my life is opening to you you know your life is opening to me we're talking mm-hmm. to god through each other so to speak mm-hmm. we're complementing each other we're completing each other and that's mm-hmm. uh, i think that's a, the when we begin to touch the presence and power of god in worship um mm-hmm. it's an incredible thing it is an expression mm-hmm. of family and it's not the only expression, you know, if family is expressed by us caring for each other through the week for being there when we're going through tough times and, and all the rest of it. But worship is, is a, a powerful point where, mm-hmm. you know, heaven meets earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think in some ways it, it is bringing us into the perichoretic experience of the Trinity um, because it's the spirit who empowers all of that ministry and in empowering us in that ministry, he's helping us to ab- abide in Christ and in, in the Christ experience, you know, of, of relationship to the Father and Spirit. Um, it, you know, we're actually about to, this Sunday is our last Sunday on a, um, uh, a gift, uh, a spiritual gift series that we've been doing for several weeks, which has been far and away even more powerful than I thought it was going to be uh, for our church. Uh, but I may just bring that notion into this last message in terms of what's really happening, you know, on a spiritual plane um, when when gifts. It's not just the edification of the bride. Um, in some way, it's us experiencing God in a, in a personal, relational way that is more than just knowing about him. It's, it's truly knowing him. I want to uh, keep going on that. Here's a, a quote. Um, this is kind of a lengthy quote, but there's a lot here for us to um, pick up on. And I think it's really profound. Evangelicals faithfully stress that Christ is the sole mediator of salvation between God and men. Yet demonstrate a curious equivocation about whether Christ is the sole mediator of knowledge between God and men. I had to look up the word uh, equivocation because I thought equivocation meant, uh, you know, something along the lines of equal, but it, it doesn't mean that. Um, and in fact, I kind of forgot what it meant already. What does equivocation mean? Yeah, equivocating is uh, when you're indecisive. Like dissonance, right? Two, of two minds, unclear. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Ambiguous language to conceal the truth or avoid committing oneself. Yeah. So so basically what he's saying there is um, uh, evangelical Christians agree that Christ is the mediator of salvation between God and men. Uh, yet 
there's an inconsistency, I suppose, about whether or not we think of him as the mediator of knowledge between God and men. A testimony to this uncertain commitment to Christ's soul mediation is the prevalence among evangelicals of highly rationalistic forms of apologetics or the related preoccupation with erecting epistemological frameworks for our theological confession, unhinged from the revelation of Jesus Christ, which frameworks attempt to provide the conditions for the possibility of God apart from this triune revelation of Christ. Essentially, we have detached ourselves from the incarnation being absolutely necessary for knowing anything true about God. Um, I, I, I think that's kind of, you know, the layman's terms of what they're saying. Uh, but yeah. before I keep reading, do you want to clarify? Yeah, I think it goes back to the <clears throat> 2000 year old debate where, you know, people borrowed um, one, you know, one group of theologians tried to, over-explain um, aspects of the Christian faith rationalistically by borrowing from what they had, which was Greek philosophy, which mm -hmm. is still there, even though we don't realize it. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and really, the Bible says you can't, it's not that, it's not that God is irrational, it's that uh, um, if we start with human reason, you'll never get to God. You'll never find God through human reason. You'll never find God through natural revelation, through beautiful sunsets or whatever. You, you know, you can only actually know God through the fact that God came into this world, assumed our humanity, walked around the streets and revealed God to us. And that's where you get to know God. And all your... And the the, the quippy statement they have for that is only God knows God. So only God can make himself known. Exactly. And he made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, right. I, I but, mean, yeah, yes. <laughs> and they're, you know, they're going to go on to describe trying to know God, you know, by either purely rationalistic means as, uh, uh, um, what's the exact epistemic Pelagianism. Or by starting from a point of rationalism and, you know, marrying that with, with revelatory knowledge uh, as semi-Pelagian um, uh, so epistemology. We're, we're, losing most, we're losing most of our listeners right about this moment. So Pelagius <laughs> being the heretic who taught it, that um, you could be saved, you were saved you by know, works. That was part of your salvation. Talking, yeah, it's basically talking about you can know God through your own efforts, which is your own reason. You can figure God out. And right. you know, there's a long tradition through um, that Thomas Aquinas, the, the great Catholic theologian, tried to mm -hmm. mix uh, Aristotle with the gospel. And mm -hmm. uh, that's still, you know, that's still prevalent. There there are parts of uh, our beloved Theos U that would hold to that still, which we shan't. Is that, is that a shout out to Gabriel? <laughs> I'm not mentioning any names at all, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, whereas uh, um, I think the most orthodox Christian leaders from Augustine on, on down have said you have to start with the revelation of God in Scripture. And um, the revelation of God in Scripture shows us that all rationality, you know, God is supreme, supremely rational, that he's created this world you know, with a structure to it and an order to it. And so the source of any wisdom that we've got is from God. But 
we have to acknowledge that uh, no matter what wisdom, scientific wisdom or any other kind of wisdom, it ultimately all comes from from God, uh, who's given us minds and, and 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 the capacity to understand things. But mm-hmm. when it comes to who the nature of God is, then we have to bow before him. <clears throat> we either decide I'm going to make it up, try to find God on my own, or I'm going to accept um, the covenant that he's given and the word that he's given. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and in that word, he reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ, and that is God. And so now that's my starting point. I'm not irrational. I'm not stupid. I'm not going to say any number of dumb things, but I am going to base everything that I know of God is going to come out of, however rationally I express it, it's going to come out of um, the biblical self-revelation of God in Jesus Christ. That's that's my base. I'm going to test everything by that. So if I think, okay, uh, you know, okay. Uh, how, how will I live? How am I going to do this? How am I going to conduct my business? How am I going to to um, have, have a successful marriage? Or how am I going to conduct my marriage? All of those things are going to come out of what God has revealed himself to be. I'm going to move from that base and then move outward. Okay, but a couple of things, right? So uh, number one, it doesn't seem to me like they're saying uh, that the way we can know God is through scriptural revelation. It seems to me like they're saying that the only way we can really know God is through incarnational revelation. But then if that's what they're saying, it's very dangerous. Uh, and I, I, I haven't, <laughs> unless I'm going to get a rude awakening, because unlike you, I read intensively the chapters that we're on and I don't get ahead of things. Uh, so you've read to the end and I haven't. I haven't heard that being said so far um well, okay that, so let me just put a true a truly christian epistemology epistemology you know meaning how we know what we know no things so yeah how we know things a truly christian epistemology therefore involves the assertion even insistence that apart from christ true knowledge of god and they have in parentheses after that wisdom is no more accessible to us than is his love holiness redemption or life but we only know christ through the the word and Mm -hmm. you know i've got and i i've got a whole teaching on this that i give in different places and you can find it on theos in in terms of my teaching and biblical authority but god gave the bible as a treaty in 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 uh covenantal form this is it folks this is the definition of who i am and that's what presents jesus to us so uh yes god reveals himself in the incarnation in jesus christ and it is set forth accurately what god has done and and in christ and who christ is and what he's said and so on is set forth accurately in the scriptures otherwise you know you you could say oh it's all very well i believe that christ is god but you know, then you could come up with any number of weird views of who Christ is that are completely unbiblical. Uh, Perhaps a good distinction would be to say that through the scripture alone, we can know, we can accurately know things about God because God has has uh, put his self-revelation in the scripture. Yes, exactly. But that, only that incarnationally has... can we know God experientially. Yes, that God God has revealed himself within the bounds of his scripture. That's that's why the New Testament says 
the scripture is theopneustos, it's God breathed, it's breathed out by God, that mm -hmm. God uses uh, people, obviously, with their own creative gifts to write the, the scriptures, but it's it's ultimately originates from God, and God presents it, presents in the scriptures a picture for us, an understanding for us, of what he has done in and through the Lord Jesus Christ to bring us into relationship with himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that's a good distinction to make. You know, if I if I master every biblical text, I know no more about God than Satan himself knows about God. But Satan does not know God relationally, experientially, personally. And certain, certainly there is no salvific effect in Satan's knowledge of God. Would that be a fair way to say it? Oh, and maybe that's why they're couching this in apologetics, right? So they're, you know, they're not putting the, you know, the the subject in, in the crosshairs right here is not um, theology in terms of studying God in the scriptures. It's apologetics. Uh, and so they go on to say that uh, regarding salvation, modern evangelicals tend to be robustly Augustinian reformational. And yet in relation to revelation, they often succumb to a dangerous rationalism which Alistair McGrath aptly refers to as epistemic Pelagianism, apologetic methodologies and, the oh, and theological, no idea how to say this word, prolegomena. Prolegomena. Prolegomena, what the heck does that mean? Uh, it means sort of introductory things. It's a Greek word. Comes, this is, we get the word prologue. The prologue, okay, yeah. So apologetic methods and theological prologues. <laughs> that exhibit a rationalistic tendency carry with them the implicit assumption that not only could knowledge of God be non-relational and thus non-salvific, but also that our cognitive capacities have either escaped the devastating effects of the fall or have come out only limping, transcending the need for redemption and sanctification in Christ. What, what are they saying there? Well, they're taking a shot at, you know, people like Aquinas and, 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 and some modern I, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I appreciate, um, you know, people like William Lane Craig and, and, uh, uh JP, uh, Moreland, people like that. They're, they're great, uh, servants of God. Uh, and I, and I'm not brushed up on it, um, enough to know what their epistemology or theory of knowledge is exactly. Um, but I just think we have to be careful you can't present you can you can present it to people i believe when you present the bible to people you can present to people that this is a rational worldview in the sense that it makes sense you know it makes more sense than any other worldview does i absolutely believe that but at the same time you're rooted and grounded in biblical revelation uh and you can't uh, you cannot win a person to christ simply through, uh, you know, our, for instance, arguments for the existence of God, that it, it, that's been going on since the year dot, you know, for mm -hmm. a couple of thousand years anyway, that, well, mm -hmm. you know, philosophers and theologians have tried to come up with arguments for the existence of God, and no one ever came to Christ, I don't think, through an argument for the existence of God. I mean, it's kind of secondary uh, mm -hmm. to me. I mean, it might be something that helps somebody along the way, but fundamentally, people have to uh, take a hold of the biblical revelation as it encounters them and respond to it. And I think that's what they're what they're saying. So I, I, maybe, think, I think it's helpful 
you know, if I'm discussing evolution with people, and I'm not a scientist, don't profess to be, uh, but I'll quote Professor Lennox from Oxford, and there's many eminent scientists at, at, at different places in the theological spectrum, some of them aren't even Christians, that are uh, you know, saying, well, Darwinian evolution is is dead. It, it's absolutely dead. And, uh, and you know, people uh, get offended when you say that. And then you say, well, no, go read person X, person Y, and if you're Canadian, person Z, uh, you know, um, and, and then you'll see. And, okay, there's a value in that because it kind of shakes people up. Oh, you know, maybe everything we've been taught and believed isn't quite right. So that kind of shakes them up. It could be, you know, a, a, a pre, you know, if, if 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 someone has a fixation on, you know, well, evolution and we're just evolved from a bunch of nothing and that's all we are, you can kind of shake people up by saying, no, that's actually not where science is going these days. Science is 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 pointing us in the direction of a creator. So you can shake them up, but you can't bring people into a knowledge of God. At some point, you have to present the gospel, and they have to come to a place of faith. And, you know, because you'll never accept Christ simply on a rational basis. There is a, there is a place of faith where your own, you have to surrender your own reason and say, all right, you know, the gospel let is... Me, a, let me interject and see if I can say it simply. So, uh, apart from Christ... I can know things about God because um, the Jews knew things about God. They didn't all know him abundantly accurately or well, as is evidenced by Jesus's indictment of the Pharisee. Um, but they did know some things about God because God revealed himself in the Old Testament. But if I... If I want saving knowledge of God, that has to be relational knowledge. Yeah, well, J Jesus' cr critique of the Pharisees was they didn't believe what Moses wrote. You know, mm -hmm. they 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 had the clear teaching of Scripture in front of them, but they twisted it. Uh, and so, uh, but I think I think what the writers of the book we're we're studying here are are saying rightly is that. You can never, you, you know, no one will ever come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ through pure, purely rational means. And uh, so, you know, we can make rational defenses of the Christian faith, but they're on the, they're not at the heart of that. People aren't going to be one to Christ. It may shake people up. It may break down a few of their defenses. Um, and that's legitimate. I, I think as a legitimate place that way. but. We just have to be aware of the fact that ultimately, uh, you know, no matter how, you know, rationally you present the claims of Christianity, you still have to make a leap of faith to believe that Jesus is God and you're going to put your life in his hands. That that's that's beyond rationality. That is a decision. It's a supernatural encounter. Perhaps this uh, quote from Calvin in the book settles the matter. For Christ proves that he is the life because God cannot be enjoyed in any other way than in Christ. And I think it's safe to say that one way to 
to qualify salvation is to say that it is the true enjoyment of God as God invites us to enjoy him. And that's only possible in Christ. Wherefore, all theology, when separated from Christ, is not only vain and confused, but is also mad, deceitful, and spurious. For though the philosophers sometimes utter excellent sayings, yet they have nothing but what is short-lived and even mixed up with wicked, erroneous sentiments. That's from Calvin. Yeah, Calvin he, is... He was attacking the Catholic Church and their philosophical presuppositions, which, of course, had, you know, there had been such a mixture of the Bible and all of the rest of it that it had created mass confusion. Uh, and 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 uh, the church was decadent as a result. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't seem to me like uh, they're saying, at least I hope not, but I, I, I can't see how they would, as people who point to the scriptures, you know, on pretty well every page of this book, um, as a means of backing up what they're saying about Jesus. Uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't I haven't got that uh, feeling at this point. Well, you're you're detecting devices would be more finely tuned than mine, so um, that's good. Let's close on uh, on this because um, it's about that time. The knowledge that we have of the Father through the Son is mediated to us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. We know God as Father only in the Son and always through the Spirit. Let's wrap things up by bringing in uh, the third member of the Trinity into this process. How does the Holy Spirit connect to uh, the incarnation of Christ and our experience of Christ? Well, he, he is God, and he draws us through his presence uh, into that love relationship with the Father and the Son. Uh, and and that's why we must never marginalize the Holy Spirit. And I think it's it's a shame how we often in, in church have spent more time arguing about the Holy Spirit than inviting him in and uh, honoring him as God. Or we've kind of, you know, referred to the Holy Spirit as an it sometimes or, you know, really it's the Father and the Son and the Spirit is just well, we have to have him because otherwise we wouldn't be Trinitarians. No, the Holy Spirit is God here on earth, drawing us into the relationship of the Father and the Son. And uh, and he is as much God as the Father is and as the Son. Uh, and so we, uh, I mean, I think that's one of the great heritage inherit, one of the great uh, positive results of <laughs> inheritances all modern uh, Pentecostal slash charismatic movement has been a vastly renewed and increased emphasis on the person and work of the Holy Spirit and I'm all for that so when the when Paul says that the spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ is that first Corinthians uh, 12 and I quoting that somewhat correctly mm -hmm. So that's that's essentially the spirit. He puts us in Christ. That's a supernatural, mysterious thing. Uh, you know, I guess kind of similar to what Jesus says in John chapter three. The wind, we know not. What does he say about the wind? 
The spirit bloweth where he listeth in the authorized version. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. Right. So that's like a supernatural thing. You know, we're not born of the flesh. We're born from above. Mm. Um, and uh, when the spirit does that to somebody, he is he is taking a branch and grafting it into the vine. He's taking a person and he's baptizing them into Christ's body. Um, and that is the spirit's role in, and he, in and salvation. As surely as he filled the Holy of Holies uh in 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 into which only one man could go once a year in pain of death as surely as he filled the holy of holies he now is filling each of us we're one man one woman mobile tabernacles of the holy spirit and that is absolutely mind-blowing thought we should remind ourselves every morning you know i mean we we have our, we all have our problems and our weaknesses and our battles but we are also carry the presence of god the holy spirit within us so the we have the presence of God within us, who is the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is God, and the Holy Spirit puts us in puts us puts us into God in the sense that He puts us into Christ, who is God the Son. So there's some there's some perichoretic activity happening there, um, and uh, that's astounding. Um, and the Holy Spirit is doing that for us on an ongoing basis and apart from the incarnation that would be an impossibility because uh, unless christ took on humanity and redeemed humanity uh there would be no uh no no person or landing place in which to put us um right. i don't know how that works help, help me out with that yeah, the Holy Spirit would not have come. He would not have been able to indwell us mm -hmm. without Christ. Mm -hmm. But he draws us into that love relationship between the Father and the Son. So when you have an encounter with the Holy Spirit, you can expect to experience the love of God the Father and God the Son because he draws mm -hmm. us to the middle of that relationship. But I'm trying to connect it to the incarnation because to me saying that does not make it abundantly clear that Christ had to become incarnate in order for us to be drawn into that experience. Well, well, because the Holy Spirit uh, will only indwell uh, a person who is identified with Christ, who has been identified with Christ in by faith, uh, and the seal of the fact that God has accepted that person because of what, because of their faith in Jesus, the seal is that then God gives them the spirit. Mm -hmm. So the incarnation is absolutely central. If Jesus hadn't come, no one could receive the spirit. Right. So because the incarnation is absolutely necessary for our, um, our salvation. Uh, it's, it's just that simple. Yeah. Our, our, Jesus draws us into relationship with God the Father, and that is what then enables the Holy Spirit to come, or at least then God sends his spirit to fill us because we have, he looks upon us in the way that he looks upon his son who was filled with the spirit. So he sends the same spirit to fill us because we are part of Christ. We are his body. Right. And if he hadn't come to this world then and taken our 
sinful humanity upon himself and enabled us to come into relationship with God, none of that would have been possible. Mm -hmm. Here we go. By becoming incarnate, the Son of God extended his relationship with his Father into our human existence. So Jesus, the Son, and the Father have always had uh, eternal relationship and union with one another um, in the Holy Spirit. Uh, but by becoming a human, he extended that relational experience into humanity. Uh, in other words, the perichoretic relation of Father, Son, and Spirit, their mutual indwelling, and here's this word, interpenetration, the life and love they share together has taken residence in our human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. So simply by becoming incarnate, Jesus brought that relational experience into the human experience. Thus, the love and life that God is and always has been as Father, Son, and Spirit comes to us as the Spirit joins us to the Son that we might know his Father. So because Christ became a man, uh, our humanity gets to be identified with his, and therefore we get to have uh, the human experience of that perichoretic relationship that Christ had while he walked the earth, and it's the spirit that brings us into that. Hmm. Astounding gospel truths. I don't know about you, David, but this stuff lights me up. It's exciting. It really is. God is good. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening to today's episode of the Bass Podcast. We love you. And uh, hey, why don't you do us a favor and give us five stars. Leave us, leave us a positive review. Help us get the word out about our podcast. Um, and we hope you all have a great week. See you soon.